together. Show yourself to have the first place in this universe and make yourself to have the first place in our hearts. We pray it in your name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been somewhere, uh, been in a situation, um, and suddenly realized that in the crowd you're in, you just weren't quite religious enough to really fit in. If you've been a Christian or been around Christianity for any length of time, that's probably happened to you at one point or another. Maybe it was in a certain church that you visited or around a certain person that you knew, but suddenly you felt that your clothes weren't right for the occasion or your hair was too long if you were a boy or maybe your hair was too short if you were a woman or your vocabulary was not churchy enough. We've all been in spots like that. Um, I remember when I was in seminary, I was invited to preach in chapel towards the end of my last year and I went to visit with the preaching professor to go over what was going to happen and how long I had and all these kinds of things and we finished talking and I was on my way out the door of his office and he stopped me and said, oh, by the way, make sure you wear a coat and a tie. And um, not that he was being a legalist, but he knew that if I went into the pulpit with a coat and no tie or a tie and no coat, uh, that there would be people that would immediately discredit what I had to say um, because they had certain rules about what it looked like to be a Christian. So I'm sure all of us have experienced that or at least seen it. Maybe some of us have been on the giving end of it, making other people feel like heathen because they didn't have this or that I dotted or T crossed. That's called legalism. Uh, Trying to put our laws on other people and make them feel that they have to measure up to a certain standard or be a certain man-made kind of person in order to really be a Christian. And it's always with us. It's always going to be with us. I've seen this week as I've read the reports coming back from the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention that it is alive and well in our denomination. Three things that came up this week were amazing to me. One uh, is that a motion was made that any, any Christian who wanted to be in any leadership position in the SBC, uh, their church had to give 10% to the Southern Baptist Convention or else they were disqualified from leadership. Thankfully, that failed. Uh, But you have to do this amount as a church in order to really count. Uh, Another one uh, that is still being debated is uh, if you're baptized after you become a believer and by immersion, just like the Bible says, uh, there are some in our convention that are now wanting to trace it a step further back and find out who that person was who baptized you and if they were really theologically sound, as if somehow uh, your Christianity doesn't count if the guy that baptized you was a goofball. Um, and the third one uh, that, that passed, unfortunately, um, was that if you want to be in a leadership position in the Southern Baptist Convention now, you cannot ever have a sip of alcohol, which works okay for me because I don't drink alcohol, so uh, I could be a leader in that regard, but Jesus couldn't. Jesus couldn't be a trustee in any of our agencies of the Southern Baptist Convention It's amazing how easy it is for us to lay down laws that Jesus in the New Testament never laid down for us. That was a problem that Paul was constantly having to battle in these churches that he's writing to in the New Testament. Oftentimes for Paul, it was, uh, you're not religious enough, 
And oftentimes that statement, you're not religious enough, was coming to new Christians and very oftentimes it was coming with a very distinct Jewish accent. There were certain Jewish leaders and oftentimes these were even leaders in churches who were constantly pressuring Gentile converts to obey certain rules in order to really be Christians. And that's what Paul is writing about, and that's the situation he's speaking to in Colossians 2, 16 through 23. So let's read it together and just get a picture of the kind of situation Paul is having to deal with here, and it's not unlike the world that we live in today. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause because of his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence." What was happening in Colossae and in many of the New Testament churches were that Jewish leaders were coming to those churches and teaching Gentile converts that they had to become Jews in order to become Christians. Or that they had to submit to certain rules that weren't even really Jewish. They were just these particular leaders' um, soapboxes, we'll say. And you can see three of them in this passage They were coming to these converts, these new Christians, and saying, in order to be a Christian, you have to submit to the Old Testament ceremonial laws. You have to eat kosher, food and drink in verse 16. You have to celebrate all the Jewish festivals and the monthly new moon celebrations. You have to do the Sabbath day just like we do it. And then in verse 18 and 19 They were also coming to these people and saying, not only do you need to follow the Old Testament ceremonial law to be a Christian, but you also need to imbibe the mysticism that we celebrate as part of our Jewish culture. There was an element of Judaism that was very mystical, not unlike some that you might see uh, today on television. And so we read about worship of angels in verse 18 and taking their stand on visions that they had seen. A very mystical sect. And so some were coming and saying to these new Christians, Oh, if you're really a Christian, you'll start to have visions like this and you'll start to understand about all these angels and then you'll really know what it means to be a believer. And then in verses 20 through 23, some were coming and saying, in order to really be a Christian, you have to adopt asceticism or self-deprivation, kind of a desert hermit lifestyle. So you have this phrase that apparently Paul is quoting that these teachers were saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And you have this discussion in verse 23 of self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. The constant refrain was, if you aren't doing these things, then you're not 
religious enough. And that's dangerous, isn't it? When someone comes to us with a list of rules and says, if you're not doing these things, then you can't possibly be a Christian. It's always dangerous. And they're usually a man-made list. They're dangerous to non-Christians, for one thing, because non-Christians, when they get a list of rules, immediately feel hated and condemned by the church, or the so-called church, and they write Christianity off, don't they? Or perhaps non-Christians get a list of rules from us, and they think, oh, Christianity is just a system of do's and don'ts, and if I can do these things, then I'm a good person, and God will accept me. And that makes Jesus unnecessary in their eyes. And we've ruined the gospel for them. But this kind of thing, this legalism is dangerous to new Christians as well. That's what it was dangerous. Uh, The danger in Colossae was to new Christians because new Christians, one, can get this list of things, all these things that they think they're supposed to do, and they can just get discouraged and give up. You tell them on the front end, all you have to do is trust Christ and you're his child. And then you start to pile up stuff on them. You know, you give them all these books they have to read and things they have to do. And they have to get up at 5 a.m. and pray and do all these things. And they just say, I can't make it. I must not really be a Christian. Or they have a strong willpower and they do all those things and they become little legalists and start to go around and telling everyone else that this is what you have to do to be a Christian. Spreading condemnation everywhere that they go. And legalism is even dangerous for those who are seasoned Christians. Which is many of you, you've been Christians for a while. As if you begin to live by a set of rules thinking that's what makes you right with God, then you forget about Jesus. You forget how much you need Him. And without realizing, you stop trusting Him and start trusting yourself. And you also won't share the gospel as freely as you ought with unbelievers if you have all these strings attached. You won't be like the prodigal son's father who says, come back freely and I'll forgive you. You won't tell people about a God like that. You'll tell people about a God whom if you come back to him, then you've got to work really hard on his farm to kind of make up for all the stupid stuff that you did in your youth. It's dangerous, legalism is. So we need to answer an important question tonight. The important question is, what does God have to say about this? We know it's happening all around us. We know it was happening in Colossae. Some of us have seen it firsthand. What does God say about legalism? And what I want to do, answering that one broad question, what does God say about legalism, is try to, try to put together or, or put it in three sub-questions. So three, three main questions that all fit under this one big question. What does God say about this tonight? And so the first sub-question and the first kind of main point tonight is this. Uh, what does God, through Paul, say about legalism in general? What's kind of the overall view? If we only had ten minutes to discuss this passage, what would we say about it? I think the clearest way that we can summarize Colossians 2, 16-23 is by saying this simple sentence. Religion doesn't save you. Jesus does. Right? That's something that I think most of us understand and can agree upon. Religion doesn't save you. Jesus does. And you can see as we just kind of trace through these verses, that that's Paul's theme. In verse 16, he lists all these things that the the new believers were being judged on. But then he says in verse 17, these things are a mere shadow of what was to come, what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance of Christianity is not rules. The substance of Christianity is Christ. Religion doesn't save you. 
Christ does. And then in verse 19, 18 and 19, as he speaks to this mysticism that was being forced on these new believers, he says, you know what? What it means to be a Christian, verse 19, is to hold fast to the head, the head of the body, who's Christ, as you read in the rest of Paul's writings. Being a Christian doesn't mean having lots of grandiose experiences. Being a Christian is holding fast to Christ, verse 19. And then as he gets to his third problem, This problem of uh, self-deprivation, he says in verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to these decrees? You're dead to those things because you died with Christ. The substance of Christianity is Christ. Religion doesn't save us. Christ saves us. And then his, his exhortation to us out of that overarching truth is this. Do not let anyone judge you by man-made religious requirements. Do not let anyone tell you you either are or are not a Christian based on some set of religious requirements that their church or your church or that individual has put together. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Religion does not save us. Christ saves us. And Paul doesn't make this exhortation um, but, but it's a reverse of the one he makes. If we're not to let anyone judge us based on man-made religious requirements, then we ought not be judging others based on those requirements either. Right? So, that's where he's going tonight. And if we understand that, then we have understood at least on a general level what Paul is about tonight. And it's incredibly liberating if we remember that we're saved by Christ, not by our own effort. And I want you just to follow Paul's train of thought, beginning back in verse 13, because there's a therefore at the beginning of verse 16 where we started. So we can't just overlook that and forget what it's there for. So begin in verse 13 and follow this train of thought with me. In verse 13, verses 13 and 14, Paul says to these people, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us is God's righteous decrees, God's law that is against us because we have broken it. But what he, excuse me, what he is saying there in verses 13 and 14 is that because of Jesus, God's law cannot condemn us. So get that. That's the first thing in his logic tonight. God's law cannot condemn us. Verse 15, he says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning Satan and his his Uh, minions, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So verses 13 and 14, because of Jesus, God's law cannot condemn us. And then in verse 15, because of Jesus, the powers of darkness cannot condemn us. Isn't that amazing? God's law, God is the most powerful. And because of Jesus, he can't condemn us. Satan is next, more powerful than any human uh, alive. Satan can't condemn us because of what Jesus has done. And then in verse 16 through 23, the therefore is pointing us to a third way that we can't be condemned. Because of Jesus, man-made religious regulations cannot condemn us. The therefore 
puts it like this if we can paraphrase. It's like Paul is saying to them, if God himself can't condemn you because of what Christ has done, and if Satan cannot condemn you because of what Christ has done, therefore, it makes no sense in the world to think that man and his requirements could condemn you because Jesus has died for you so that you don't have to live by man's requirements anymore. If God can't condemn us and Satan can't condemn us, then surely man and his requirements cannot condemn us. Man's requirements aren't stronger than God's law. And they're not stronger than the devil's schemes. And they cannot defeat those who are in Christ. So don't let anyone judge you based on man-made religious requirements. Christianity is not a religion in which man tries through his own efforts to pursue God. It's not a religion, and it's not a religion where man through various efforts pursues God. Christianity is a miracle where God, through the one act of the cross, pursues and wins over the hearts of men. That's a big difference. Therefore, what can man do to me? So that's the first question. In general, what is God through Paul saying? He's saying that religion doesn't save us. We don't save ourselves, in other words. Christ saves us. The second question then is this. What is God through Paul not saying in these verses? What is he not saying? And I ask this because I want to correct a potential misconception or misunderstanding that we may have when we read these verses, particularly verses 16 and 17. Paul is not saying that the Old Testament, which he's referring to in verse 16, has no value for the Christian. Paul is not saying that God's Old Testament law, which he refers to in verse 16, has no authority over New Testament Christian living. He's not nullifying Old Testament law. But one might conclude this by reading verse 16 because Paul is referring to Old Testament law here, isn't he? He's referring to food and drink, laws that were in the Old Testament, festivals and new moons and the Sabbath day, all these things that are a part of God's law, a part of the first five books of the Old Testament. So one might read this when he says, no one can judge you in regard to food, drink, festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. And they might say, well, what Paul is saying then is don't pay any attention to those Old Testament laws because they were eradicated by Jesus. And God doesn't expect us to do anything with that. That's not what he's saying. Let me give you a few reasons why I don't believe that that's why he's saying. Five reasons why Paul is not saying let's ignore the law. Number one, Paul was a great lover of the Old Testament. Whenever the New Testament writers speak of Scripture... All of them except for Peter, one time when he refers to the letters of Paul. All the rest of the times when the New Testament writers are speaking of Scripture, they're speaking about the Old Testament. And you remember Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, Timothy, you remember the Scriptures, the Old Testament that you've known from your youth, which is able to make you wise for salvation. And then he follows it with this famous verse, all Scripture, meaning the Old Testament, all Scripture is inspired by God. And is is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So for Paul to say all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And then to turn around in Colossians 2 and undercut the Old Testament law and the abiding significance of it doesn't make sense. Second, I want to point out to you that Paul, we know Paul is not 
saying, uh, let's ignore the Old Testament law because um, his main argument in this passage is about man-made regulations, as we've been saying. He's not arguing against the Old Testament here. He's arguing against the regulations that man has made, some of which have to do with the Old Testament. So we can see that if we read verses uh, 22 and 23, he speaks of, in the end of verse 22, the commandments and teachings of men. And then in verse 23, he speaks of self-made religion. He's talking about what man has, has added to Christianity. Whether he's added it to, added it, is that right? Added it, yes. Um, to the Old Testament or to the understanding in the New Testament of Christianity. So as regards to verses 16, verse 16, he's speaking, not saying that the law is faulty itself, but that man's application of the law has been faulty. That the Jewish people have come and said, you've got to obey all the Old Testament ceremonial laws just like we did back when we were Israel. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not right. If you don't observe the feast like we do, you're not a real Christian. Paul says, no, that's not true. But he doesn't say the feasts are irrelevant. Thirdly, if Paul was trying to remove Old Testament law, if he was trying to say Old Testament law is no longer useful for us, he would have just simply said so. He doesn't say so, though. He says, don't let anyone judge you based on these things. But he doesn't say, hey, listen, don't worry about the law. If someone comes to you with the law, tell them the law is through with. That would have been easy to say, but that's not what he says. Fourth. We know that he's not talking about the Old Testament here because he says in, because Jesus says in Matthew 5 these words. This is most important. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See what Jesus is saying? The law still stands. There's still a purpose for it. And we're going to talk about the difference between the Old Testament purpose and the New Testament purpose. But the law still stands. And that's not what Paul is trying to get rid of here. And then finally, Romans 10.4. Paul writes there that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Sometimes we've, we've kind of convinced ourselves that Romans 10.4 says Christ is the end of the law. And so Christians don't, don't have any regulations for how they should live. Christians just, what would Jesus do? Well, that's not it. It doesn't say Christ is the end of the law. It says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, the law can't be used for trying to gain righteousness with God anymore. It doesn't need to be. Now, no one ever gained righteousness with God through the law because no one ever kept the law besides Jesus. But Paul is stressing in this verse, you don't have to keep the law to be right with God because you can't and Jesus has died so you don't have to. But he doesn't then go on to say, well, the law is just dead. He says it's only dead as it relates to us using it to try to be right with God. There is still a use for the Old Testament law. So the main point here is this. Paul is not eradicating God's Old Testament law here. There's still significance for it today for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now let me, let me just take an excursus here and try to 
explain to you the difference between how the law was used in the Old Testament and how God means for us to use it today. The difference in New Testament times versus Old Testament times is not whether we have the law, but how we apply it. And Jesus makes that really clear in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He gives all these commandments from the Old Testament and he explains how they apply to those living in the New Testament kingdom. The law applies differently for New Testament Gentile believers spread out all across the globe than it did for Old Testament Jewish believers who were living just in a little strip of land called Israel. For Israel, the law had a national and a political and a municipal and a social element to it. The law was not just a spiritual thing for them, it was also a very physical thing, just like our Constitution is. So the law functioned not only as a spiritual uh, emphasis for them, but it also functioned as a national kind of constitution. It doesn't have that same function for the international church because we are not one nation anymore. So there is not this constitutional binding function to it. And so we have to learn how to apply it differently, and that's largely what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And I'll give you just one example um, about that from verse 16, and then we'll go on to talk about uh, specifically what Paul is saying about legalism. I want to use from verse 16 the Sabbath as an example. Okay, For Israel, the Sabbath was a governmentally enforced religious observance. You didn't just have to do it to be doing what was right before the Lord. You had to do it in order not to get penalized by the government. So in Israel, by law, shops were closed on Saturday. And by law, the gates to Jerusalem, for example, were closed on Saturday so that merchants from the outside who weren't Jews couldn't come parading through the city with their wares. And in Israel, by law, if you were working on the Sabbath, they stoned you to death. That was the Sabbath in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament context, that can't be enforced for two reasons. Number one... In America, for instance, where we live as Christians, not everyone is a Christian, right? And so if I see my neighbor out in his yard working in his yard on Sunday, I can't go and stone him because it's not our national law. And he's thankful for that. But secondly, we don't enforce the law the same way because we don't, in Christ, prove that we are Christians by strict adherence to the law. We are Christians based on our faith in Christ. And we're all going to sin. And if every time someone broke one of God's laws, we stoned them, we would all be dead, wouldn't we? And so Jesus set that example for us with the woman caught in adultery. It wasn't that the adultery commandment was all of a sudden gone from the Ten Commandments, and that's why they didn't stone her. It was because Jesus was putting in a new way of dealing with adulterers. And a new way of dealing with people who broke the Sabbath or the other commandments. So, when I see my neighbor cutting the grass on Sunday, I may not be pleased about it. I may wish that he, he would come into the benefit of the Lord's day. But, I'm not going to stone him. Because he's not a Christian and he doesn't understand the law. And secondly, because even if he were, there's grace. For those who are in Christ. 
That's the difference in the law in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, these different situations, though, because we don't do things, apply the law the same in the New Testament, again, doesn't mean that it nullifies the law. It doesn't mean in this case that it nullifies the Sabbath principle. Living in America does not change the fact that all of us have weary bodies that need rest, complete rest, one day in seven. Living in America doesn't change the fact that our busy lives mean that we need a market day of the soul. That's what the Puritans called it. Every other day you're out in the marketplace working six days a week. You don't have a lot of time to read your Bible or hear preaching or sing or worship. And so we have one day that we set aside for that. That doesn't change because we live in America. And living in America doesn't change the fact that our prideful hearts need a reminder that work doesn't save us. That's the greatest thing about the Lord's day is that by not working, we can look around and say, oh, I wish I could do this and I wish I could do that and I wish I could do the other. I really got to get this stuff done. And by not doing it, we're reminding ourselves, I don't get right with God by working. And for that matter, I don't accomplish things for God by working, but by resting in him who does the work for me and who did the work for me on the cross. It's the same with all the Old Testament laws. They are applied differently in the New Testament era, but they are not nullified. So again, Paul is not saying that the Old Testament law is nullified for the believer. And he's not saying that those who seek to obey the Old Testament law are legalists. So now, what is Paul saying about legalism specifically? We're going to look at these three examples And I think that they are broad enough to cover much of the legalism that we see in our own day and that we're tempted to in our own hearts. So what does Paul say specifically about legalism? Three things. Number one, do not let anyone judge you based on man-made interpretation of God's law. Verses 16 and 17. So don't let anyone take the Bible and misuse it to make you feel guilty. If they use it correctly and you feel guilty, repent. But don't let them misuse it. It means you have to understand it. Number two, don't let anyone convince you. This is from verses 18 and 19. Don't let anyone convince you that religious experience, such as the worship of angels and the vision seen, equals Christianity. Don't let anyone convince you that you have to have wild religious experiences in order to be a Christian. And number three, don't let anyone convince you that self-deprivation equals Christianity. That if you become a monk, let's say, then you're really pious. Let's talk about those three and then we'll be done. Number one, don't let anyone judge you based on a man-made interpretation of God's law. He gives some examples that we've discussed already. Food and drink. In a Jewish context or in the context that the Colossians live in, perhaps someone was coming to them saying, if you're really a Christian, you can't eat pork. Cannot. If you're really a Christian, you have to buy only kosher foods at the market. Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. Don't let anyone judge you by what you drink or the food that you eat. In our context, we've already mentioned this, but it might come in the form of someone coming to you and saying, hey, listen, if you're a Christian, you can't drink alcohol ever under any circumstances. It's wrong. Well, that's not in the Bible either. The Bible says don't get drunk. If someone gets drunk, they're in sin. It doesn't matter where they live or when they live. But the Bible doesn't teach that no one can drink alcohol. I don't think it's wise. I don't drink it. 
But we're not to judge someone who, not getting drunk, has freedom of consciousness enough to do so. So the New Testament interpretation of the food and drink laws of the Old Testament was that the food and drink laws for the Old Testament were meant to distinguish God's people from the world. They ate different things, strange things, sometimes strange rules, so that it was clear that they were different from the Moabites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and so on. That's the spirit of the Old Testament food and drink laws. And that's the spirit of how we should think about our food and drink. We ought to eat and drink in such a way that clearly says I'm a Christian. That's why I don't drink in this culture. Because in this culture, non-Christians expect that Christians won't drink. And in this culture, lots of non-Christians and some Christians have drinking problems. So I choose not to drink so that I can distinguish myself from unbelievers. Not because the Bible says you can't ever have a drink of alcohol. That's the spirit of the laws of the Old Testament. Don't make your brother stumble. What about festivals in in, um, New Moon? The festivals were the yearly festivals like Passover. The New Moon festivals happened monthly as they had a celebration for the Lord. Again, someone may have been coming to these Colossians and saying, if you don't celebrate the Passover on the right day, at the right time, in the right place, with the right people, then you're not a Christian. And they're thinking, what is I'm just a new Christian. What is the Passover? What's he talking about? Maybe some of that happened to you when you were a new Christian. Somebody was talking about something and telling you something that you needed to do or think or understand, and you didn't even know what they were talking about. And probably for a lot of you, you just kind of listened to him and pretended like you knew and then went on about your business. What Paul is saying is if someone comes to you and says, you have to eat the Passover like we do, when we do, where we do, how we do, then they're not telling you the truth. Because the truth is the Passover and all the Old Testament festivals pointed to Christ. And you know Christ. You've understood Christ. You've met Christ by faith in Him. So if you choose to celebrate the feast to remind you of Christ, wonderful. If you do other things that remind you of Christ in the same way as the feast does, wonderful. That's obedience to the Old Testament commandment. So for us, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper every month, we're celebrating the Passover. Because the Passover, blood and body symbolized Christ. And that's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In our country, our, our feast of Thanksgiving, though most people don't thank God anymore, but our feast of Thanksgiving in this country is very similar to the feast of ingathering in the Old Testament. It's an opportunity for us in our culture to do exactly what the Old Testament teaches us to do, which is when we get a harvest, thank God. The tithe is another way for us to do that. When you get your harvest at the end of every two weeks, thank God. By giving him a tenth back. So that's how the festival and new moon things uh, applied. And then, of course, we discussed the Sabbath already. But you can imagine someone coming uh, to these new believers and saying, Hey, listen, you have to have the Sabbath on Saturday. The Christians started having it on Sunday because it was Resurrection Day. And we've carried that through to this very day. But you can imagine a Jewish person coming to them and saying, No, no, the Sabbath is Saturday. And if you don't celebrate it like we Jews celebrate it, then you're in violation of God's law and you're not a Christian. Or you can hear the Pharisees saying to Jesus, or at least muttering under their breath, I can't believe he's going to heal that guy on the Sabbath. Or somebody in our culture saying to a doctor or a fireman, you shouldn't be working on Sunday. I'm glad that the doctor works on Sunday because we had a baby on a Sunday. It would have been bad. 
if doctors weren't allowed to perform acts of mercy on Sunday like Jesus did? But for us, it just might be someone saying something like, oh, well, your neighbors aren't Christians, and if you fraternize with them on Sunday, then you're, you're not observing the Sabbath. You have to stay in your house all day, and you can't go out anywhere or talk to anybody. That's not the spirit of the Sabbath law either. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so, on whichever day you choose to have your day of rest, there is this principle that we need this day of rest and day of worship. For most of us, it's Sunday. But on whichever day it works for it to happen, if you work on Sunday, it works another day, you're free to have whatever acts of rest or acts of mercy or acts of worship or acts of necessity that you have before you. You're free within this context that Jesus gave by his example on the Sabbath in his day to be with your neighbor. <coughs> You're free to, to fight fires. You're free to do those things under the, the spirit of the day, which is we all need a day of rest and worship. In all these things, he says the substance is not in the food and it's not in the drink and it's not in the festival and it's not on the new moon and it's not in the Sabbath. The, fest, the, the substance belongs to Christ. So I would say out of that, whatever you choose to eat or drink, whatever regulations you put on what you'll eat and what you'll drink, how much you'll eat or whatever it is, whatever you do with the different festival seasons of the year, these religious festivals, whatever you do with the Sabbath day, do it so that it will point you to Christ. Not because somebody's going to hit you with a two by four if you don't do it their way. And not because you think by doing this this way, you're going to make yourself right with God. Use Sunday. Use Thanksgiving. Use the Lord's Supper. Use your eating habits. Use everything that you have access to to point you to Jesus. But not to try to make you right with Jesus. So that's number one. Do not let anyone judge you based on man-made interpretations of Old Testament laws. Number two... This one might even be more popular or more necessary in our day. Do not let anyone convince you that religious experience equals Christianity. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. In Paul's day, as we just read, the problem that they were having was that some worshipped angels... Some were self-abasers, meaning they had false humility. They were always uh, trying to appear as though they were really humble. Maybe they wore really poor-looking clothes. or We don't know how they did it, but they were always trying to appear religious in, in the way that they talked, in the way that they looked. And some were seeing visions. And apparently they were saying, you've got to be this kind of person in order to be a Christian. Now, all of this you might see repeated except for the shabby clothes if you turn on the TV tonight and turn to the right television channel, right? It won't be the shabby clothes. There will be purple suits and gold chairs and things like that. But you'll have people taking their stand on visions that they've seen and talking a lot about angels and those kinds of things and purporting to you that this is what real Christianity is all about. Well, I don't think so. Paul says, don't be carried away by that kind of stuff. More likely, you might run into this kind of problem, this 
religious experience equals Christianity thing um, with folks who will tell you that in order to really be a Christian, you've got to speak in tongues, right? I don't have a problem with someone speaking in tongues, but the Bible doesn't say that's the sign of being a Christian. Or you might feel bad about yourself because you don't have uh, the same spiritual gift as someone else. Maybe your gift is very small or very private, and someone else has a gift that is very glamorous. And you say, man, I really ought to be doing what she's doing. Then I would be godly. No. If God gave you the gifts you have, you use them. For me, the temptation, and Toby and I have talked about this a lot, is I think both of us grew up um, with a very um, good emphasis on missions in our lives. That was a good thing. But the taste that I had in my mouth and that Toby, I think, had in hers was that if you really wanted to be spiritual, you'd become a missionary. You could kind of be maybe a seven or eight on a scale of ten, but unless you were a missionary, you couldn't get to nine or ten. No one ever said that. That's just the impression that we gave ourselves from what we heard. Well, if God's called you to be a missionary and you go, then ten. But if God has called you to stay in America and be a housewife or a businessman or a school teacher and you do that, that's ten. So don't think that if you do this or that or you have this experience or that, that you're really spiritual. Now, all these things I've mentioned except for TBN might be great things. But if God hasn't called you to them, then it's just pride and it's actually disobedience to try to do them. The question for all of us is, not how much have I experienced, not how much have I accomplished, not how successful have I been. The question for all of us is, from verse 19, do I hold fast to the head? And the question when we listen to others who teach us is, do they hold fast to the head? When you watch channel, I don't know what channel it is, but when you watch TBN, when you watch preachers uh, on television, when you go visit a church, when you listen to me, when you hear preachers on the radio, the question you should always be asking is, what is he saying about Jesus? Does it sound like he's really holding fast to Jesus? Or is he more concerned with his experiences, his visions, his successes, or his hobby horses in theology? And it's the same question you have to ask yourself. Not what have I experienced, but is my hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? If it is, then let God give you as many experiences or as few experiences as He sees fit. And if your hope is not built on Jesus, then it doesn't matter how religious you are. You're not holding fast to the head. So number two, don't let anyone convince you that religious experience equals Christianity. And number three, do not let anyone convince you that self-deprivation or asceticism equals Christianity. From verses 20 through 23. The phrase I'll zero in on there is in verse 21, Paul quoting these false teachers saying, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And we don't want know what he means by all that. It could be another faulty application of Old Testament food and drink laws. Uh, it could be that they're advocating a monastic type lifestyle. They were monks uh, Jewish monks in the early days called Essenes. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were found in caves 
And the men who had them in those caves were called Essenes. They were some of the earliest monks. They were Jewish monks. And so they lived in poverty and they lived in the desert because they thought in doing that, they could somehow get closer to God. In our modern times, it might be for some, especially in the Catholic environment, monasticism or becoming a nun. If I would do that, if I would give up all my possessions, take my vows of poverty and go live in the monastery, um, then, then God would accept me. In our context, for some of us, it might be fasting. If I would just fast, then God would be really pleased with me. For some of us, it might be monetary self-denial. We think by giving a certain amount of money away, if we give more and more money away, then we're really spiritual and godly. Or, as I mentioned already, for some of us, it might be thinking, oh, if I go to a really hard mission field where they might kill me, then God would be pleased. If I could be like the basses and go where they go, then I'd really be godly. Well, they're no more godly than you if you're doing what God's called you to do. God is not asking us to make self-sacrifice beyond what He has said in His Word. Sometimes God may call you to sacrifice. Sometimes He may call you to give up everything. He may call some of us to give up our lives for the Gospel. But doing so of our own initiative doesn't make us any more spiritual. Now, you'll note that Paul says that all these things, these these do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, these self-depriving laws... All of them have the appearance of wisdom. Verse 23. In other words, those who practice them appear to be more godly and more wise than everyone else. But he says at the end of the verse, they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You cannot by all the effort in the world save yourself from yourself. You cannot by all the effort in the world cut off your sin nature. If you're tempted by what you see on TV, you can throw the television out the doorway and give it to the trash man and you're still going to be tempted and you'll find another way to find that junk. Just cutting yourself off from the world doesn't have any value against selfish indulgence, fleshly indulgence. Your sin nature is there whether you like it or not. You need Christ to kill it. And furthermore, you can't save yourself by works of the flesh from God's judgment. It doesn't matter how much of a monk you want to become or how much money you want to give away, you cannot save yourself from the fact that you deserve God's judgment. Only Christ can do that for you. And Christ has done both. He saved you from your own sin nature so that you don't have to sin. And He saved you from God's judgment. As we read in verse 10 of chapter 2 a few weeks back, in Him you have been made complete. You don't have to sin anymore. Verse 14, He has canceled out the certificate of decrees consisting of debts against us and has taken out of the way having nailed it to the cross. You are not condemned anymore. Christ has already done what these false teachers were trying to do with their self-denials. That's why Paul says self-abasement and severe treatment of the body are of no value against fleshly indulgence because your flesh has already been killed if you're in Christ. Being in Christ and having your old man already dead and then trying to kill it again with your own efforts is like you going home tonight and getting out with pot roast 
out of your refrigerator that you're going to cook tomorrow and stabbing it 20 times trying to make sure that it's really dead. It's dead. It's dead. And your sin nature is dead in Christ. You don't have to kill it anymore with your own efforts. You just have to trust Christ who has done it for you. And so Paul says, if we died with Christ, verse 20, if we, if we died to the elementary principles of the world, why is if we were still living in the world that we submit ourselves to these same old rules? So what's the summary? Three minutes and we're done. The summary is threefold because we had three points. Number one, fulfilling the law, though it is important for the Christian, can never make us right with God. Fulfilling the law, though it is important for the Christian, can never make us right with God. It's Christ and Christ alone who's fulfilled the law perfectly. And He's done it on our behalf. And it is He that makes us right with God. Number two, religious experiences, though they may be wonderful and encouraging when God grants them to us, can never take away our sins. No matter how many mission trips you go on, it will never take away your sins. But Christ, who experienced the death of the cross, has taken away our sins forever. The substance belongs to Christ. Number three, self-deprivation, though God may sometimes call us to it, does not increase our righteousness. One scintilla. Self-deprivation cannot make us any more right with God than we already are in Christ. Christ deprived Himself of His glory and He emptied Himself and He humbled Himself and He took on the form of a servant and He was made in the likeness of men and He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we might be right with God. It's Christ's self-deprivation that makes us right with God, not our own. Or as we said At the very beginning, it's not religion that saves us. It is Christ. So let's put our hope in Him. Father, help us not hope in ourselves tonight. Help us not hope in how well we've done measured by human standards. Help us not even hope in how well we've done measured by Your holy and righteous standards. God, help us be realistic with ourselves, knowing that we can never measure up. God, help us beware of man-made regulations that are stricter than Your Word on us. Help us not measure ourselves by people's foolish little lists. Help us, if we have our own little unbiblical lists, to throw them in the garbage and rest in Christ. I ask it in His name. Amen. God, I pray now as we look again at the book of Colossians, as we think again through chapter 2, where Paul so strongly teaches us so that in our day-to-day lives you might have the first place over our own self-righteousness, that You would have first place over our sinfulness, You would have first place over the devil's uh, schemes against us, 
Jesus, you died so that every knee might bow and every tongue might confess that you are Lord. So tonight as we study your word again,